Good morning, Foothill Church. Today we're going to be reading out of Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Anak, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Anak spoke to the Hellenist, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with him, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Anak. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exalted, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many of them were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. This, this is, is the, the word, word of the Lord. Lord. Well, thank you, uh, Matt and Sierra. And um, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at this passage of Scripture here in a moment. But listen, uh, before we do, a couple of things. First of all, I just want to remind you on September 13th, so just two weeks from today, we're going to be starting outdoor services at 9 a.m. Uh, on our baseline campuses. We're getting everything ready for you. Uh, there will be tent, there will be shade. Uh, we'll be able to come together and worship God together. And so I hope you're planning on being a part of that. Uh, we understand, listen, if some of you are still nervous or you have, you know, there's immunocompromised things in your home, then, then we want you to stay safe. But for those who feel safe, and ready to do that, we want to provide you this opportunity to come and, and to worship. Uh, those of you who have kids, I just want to make sure you know we're actually going to have a children's program. Now, it will look different than what you remember. Obviously, it will also be outdoors, but we're going to actually uh, ask you to, to escort and take your kids. So maybe if, if you're a two-parent household, one of you would go with them and, uh, and would, would stay with them so that you can make sure their masks are on and they're staying socially distant. But if you feel like, man, That'd be a blessing to my kids not to watch this on a screen, but to see this live. Then, uh, then Whitney and Megan will be there to teach your kids uh, that morning uh, during the services that are going on with the adults. And so we'd love for you to do that. Now, just so you know, uh, it's going to be geared towards your elementary uh, kids. And if you have preschool kids, we welcome them to come. They may just love the environment, the atmosphere, the singing, all the stuff that happens over there, but just want you to be aware that that's going on. So it will look different, but we're excited that we're going to be able to offer something to your kids. We'll see how this goes. We're just trying to kind of figure things out ourselves and see if we can do this together. And so hopefully by God's grace, this is something we can continue to do week after week uh, as we continue uh, to come together each week starting on September 13th. So plan on joining us. We're really excited about this possibility. Uh, listen, I want to do one more thing before we get started. I think we're all aware of this sort of news cycle. And last Sunday, the, the shooting of Jacob Blake and um, look, l let me say something. We don't know, obviously, all the facts surrounding it, but we don't need to, okay? We, we need to not go so quickly to facts, and we need to go to places where we understand that our black brothers and sisters, our brown brothers and sisters, uh, wake up with news like that, and it puts them in a place of fear. And the Bible says that we should weep with those who weep. We should mourn with those who mourn. 
And it gives us a language to do that. And you'll see this throughout the Psalms, the, the Psalms of lament, where it's just, God, please, will you do something? Will you come and remedy this situation? So I just feel like I want to just stop this morning. And I want to just pray. And I want to pray a prayer of lament uh, over this situation and ask God uh, to help us. I mean, to, to grant that maybe we would be the generation that would see the kind of reconciliation that we all hope for uh, between, especially inside the church, that we'd be a reflection of what it should look like for the rest of the culture. So would you just bow your heads with me? And I've written a prayer here, and I'm just going to pray this over us this morning, okay? Oh, Lord, how long until we wake up without news of another black man being gunned down? How long will our black brothers and sisters spend another day crying in fear because of the color of their skin and because people don't seem to care about their plight? Father, we don't know all the circumstances surrounding last Sunday's shooting, but you do. What we do know is that this kind of event seems to be happening with a sickening consistency in our country. We know that no matter all the facts of the case, that it's headlines like these that cause our brothers and sisters to weep and wonder if anybody shares their plight. Lord, how long into your people weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn instead of trying to find justification for why someone deserved to be shot? Forgive us, Lord. So often we have failed to even empathize with our black brothers and sisters. God, we ask your forgiveness. Give us eyes that see what you see. Give us hearts to feel what you feel. Let our loyalty be to you and kill the idolatry of partisan politics that has hijacked so much of your church and so much of what we feel about situations like this. Father, we pray for Jacob Blake. We pray that he would live and walk again. We pray for his children who witnessed his shooting, that God, you'd heal them, comfort them, draw near to them. We pray for the peace of our cities, especially for Kenosha, Wisconsin, that God, you'd grant them peace in the midst of the storm. Father, Satan would love to see the bride of Christ divided. And so we pray against him and we pray that the same gospel that reconciled us to you would reconcile us to each other, that the world would know that we are Christians by our love, no matter our race or culture or class or language or political affiliation. And Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you would unite our hearts for the glory of your name and for the fame of your Son, Jesus. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles and you're in Acts chapter 11, let me remind you that we are spending this uh, next several weeks just looking at the hope that the gospel gives us. Remember, hope in Scripture, we said this a few weeks ago, is a life-shaping certainty about the future, right? It is what Hebrews 11 says is an assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things not seen. And when we have that hope, then it becomes an impulse that, 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 that affects every area of our life. So we've, we've looked at just the, the gospel, this, this power of the gospel to enlighten our eyes and do things for us in our spiritual lives. We saw how it, it gives us hope for our family, hope for the community of faith that we find ourselves in. And today I want you to see how it gives us hope for reaching out into our world. And to do that, I, I, I've, I've, I want us to look at Acts chapter 11. 
Because Acts chapter 11 tells the story of a remarkable church. It's the church in Antioch, right? And the church in Antioch is this multicultural place where people are coming together and it becomes a launching pad for mission out into the world. In fact, this is where we could trace the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. He goes out from the church of Antioch and circles back to it. They become the funders. They become the people that provide the, 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 the ability for Paul to keep going on his missionary journeys. Antioch is this, is this city where it, it was understood to be the third city of Rome, probably a population of about 500,000 people in Paul's day. It was a, it was a, a crossroads for roads coming from the, from, the, from the north, from the south, from the east. So it's this cosmopolitan, rich culture where there are Greeks and Romans and Syrians and Jews and Egyptians and Arabs and Africans all in this one city. So that John Stott says this, he says, no more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as the springboard for worldwide Christian missions. It is not an exaggeration to say that the church of Antioch in some way changed the world, not just in their day, but in our day. We, I think, could trace our heritage because of Paul's being able to be launched out of there to the church in Antioch that they decided it was worth going and getting on mission with Jesus and pushing out into their world. And because of that, they changed their world. Now, listen, I want to know what it takes to be a world-changing church. I want to be in a church like that. I want to lead a church like that. And so I want us to look and just say, what, what, what kind of church changes the world? And I want us to look at that through the lens of Acts chapter 11, because that's true of them. And we're just going to look at four things, all right? So the first thing I want you to see is the kind of church that changed the world is, of course, an evangelistic church. Now, I'm not going to read it all over again, but if you look in verses 19 through 21, you see what happened. You've got these, these, these people coming from various places, and it says they just went preaching about Christ, preaching about the Lord Jesus, uh, Michael Green comments of the early church, he says, they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. These were ordinary people who just went out and said, we're going to preach about Jesus. So the church in Antioch was birthed out of just this simple evangelism of proclaiming Christ, of saying, Jesus is king. Now listen, this simplifies what we think of as evangelism. Most of us, you know, get knock-kneed and terrified when we think about evangelism because we think that what we have to do is have all of the answers to winning a philosophical argument when in fact what we need to be doing is introducing people to a person not winning arguments. Because ultimately, none of us came to Christ simply through arguments. We believed in Jesus. We did according to John. It says we, you know, we, we, we believed in Christ Jesus, and by believing, we had life in his name. That's what saved us. Jesus saved us. It's not simply the message. It's not simply the kingdom. It's the king of that kingdom that we believe in. And so here's this early church simply just introducing people to Jesus Christ that had changed their lives. What if we did that? What if that was, man, I just want more people to know about Jesus. Now, but I want you to notice something about their preaching that I think Luke signals to us from, from verses 19 through 21. And, and, I, and the first thing I want you to see is that it was cross-cultural. 
Okay, their, their teaching was cross-cultural. Something really unexpected happens. If you notice this, it says in, in verse 19, there were these people from Phoenicia and Cyprus, and they were speaking to Jews. But then in verse 20, it says, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. In other words, what they decided to do is these North African men and women, they arrive in Antioch and they preach. They go, we're not just going to go to Jesus. Jews, we're going to go to the Hellenists. What are Hellenists? Hellenists is simply the Greek culture. They had adopted the culture of the, the dominant culture of the day would have been Greek. So here's a group of people who say, hey, you know what? Let's test and see if the gospel is bigger than just Jews. If the gospel, when we talk about Jesus as the Messiah, if a Greek speaking, if a Gentile culture will believe, and they do, Right, it actually moves across cultures. And this is so courageous of them. Tim Keller calls these, these early missionaries mavericks. John Stott calls them daring spirits. It's the first time that a group of ordinary people, these are not professional missionaries. These are not professional pastors. Uh, th these are simply people who go in, act strategically and intentionally to reach a non-Jewish culture. And that's meant to give us hope. I was listening to J.D. Greer several months ago preach uh, through Acts chapter 7 and 8, and, and he, he, he said, you know, right now in the 1040 window, this is the window that would be, you know, covering the Middle East and one of the most difficult unreached places in the world, there are about 40,000 missionaries. That's a lot, right? That's wonderful. There are people who say, man, I'm dedicated to this, but, but in the same area, there's, there's over 2 million Christians who are there in business, just ordinary people. Like even if we assume that 50% of those are just nominal Christians, that leaves us with a, with, with a million people who if they would just take seriously the proclaiming of Christ, introducing people to Christ, imagine how, how much headway we could make in world evangelism. Imagine if we did that here. Imagine if we just took seriously, I just want to talk about Jesus in my workplace, in my school, at, at, in the neighborhood. That's what I'm trying to do is introduce people to the person who changed my life, to Jesus Christ. It was, it was cross-cultural. But the second thing I want you to see is that it was counter-cultural. Do you notice it says that they went about preaching the Lord Jesus? Um, uh, now, now we, we tend to pass over stuff like this, like, like that, that, okay, they taught about the Lord Jesus, but, but look, that is a counter-cultural message because the culture would have never said that. They might have said Lord Caesar, Lord Zeus, Lord Diana, something like that, but, but it would have been subversive, it would have been treasonous, it was absolutely counter-cultural to say the Lord Jesus but Christianity has always been counterculture. I think we think that back in the first century, oh, they just preached everybody knew it was kind of this no big deal. No, this was very difficult to say the Lord Jesus is to say that no one else is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. There is nobody else who is Lord. Diana is not Lord. Zeus is not Lord. Bring it into the 21st century. Materialism is not Lord. Family is not Lord. Leisure is not your Lord. Race is not your Lord. Your Political party is not your Lord as much as that's happening in our world today. Wealth, career, children, none of those things. There is one Lord and it's Jesus. That was as countercultural then as it is today. We will be called, 
you know, you're, you're so exclusive. You're saying Jesus is the only way. That's exactly what we're saying because he is, right? But, but notice something else about how countercultural they were. Look, in, look down at verse, the end of verse 26. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, that's probably not a title they gave to themselves, right? They didn't, they didn't say, hey, let's call ourselves Christians. That's probably a negative term that the culture gave them because they were so different. They were so much proclaiming Christ. People began to say they're little Christ. That's literally what Christian means. These are, these are little Christs running around. This is the name that was given. They're so identified by Christ. They're so known to have him on their lips that everybody goes, oh, this is little Christ. Not, not little Caesars, the pizza, right? But like, not little Democrats, not little, little Republicans, not, not black, white, brown. What they're known for, not Cyprus or Cyrene or Egypt or Iraq or any of those. They are known for being people with Jesus on their lips, people who Jesus is the center of their life. Man, Christians, what are we known for? What, what, what are we known for? What are you known for? I mean, are we known first by our political aff affiliation? Like, is that what gets most airtime in our life? Or are we known because we, we have the name of Jesus on our lips? Here's a group of people that they don't conform. So much out of conformity with the dominant culture. So much they're not looked upon as just a, a strange sect of Jews. People looked in and saw people of different colors and stripes and nationalities and nations. There's something different. See, Christian, we were never meant to be a mirror of the culture. We were never meant to, to present to the culture a sort of lame religious version of itself. We were meant to be a counterculture that look and says, man, they march to a different rhythm. They seek, they, 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 the name of Jesus is on their lips. They worship him and it's obvious. They're countercultural in their preaching. But third, notice it was often, this kind of evangelism was often anonymous. Do you notice that you don't know the names? We know none of the names of these people in this early church. Like we don't know who founded this church, this remarkable church. We just know that there were these faithful men and women who decided to go out and proclaim Christ wherever they went. This is the story, by the way, of world missions. This is the story of world evangelization, is that most people that are doing that are never going to be named. So if you wonder if your anonymous life can make a difference, look at Antioch. Obviously it can. Here are ordinary people filled with the Spirit, uh, preaching Jesus, and they change their world. Look, I think... We live in an era, obviously, of celebrity Christian culture, right? There are big names. There are, you know, we have, we have uh, sports, you know, stars who, who come out and tell us everybody they're Christian, right? And so we think, man, that's so awesome. And boy, if we could just get more of them. Like how, what if we could get you know, Steph Curry and Trevor Lawrence to come and talk to us here at Foothill Church? Or what if we could get some of the luminaries within evangelicalism, Matt Chandler and Jen Wilkin or Brian Loritz or Tim Keller or John Piper to come? That'd be wonderful. But listen, I would take all of us going out and simply being Christians in our culture, proclaiming Christ in our culture any day over any other celebrity we could bring into this place. I would take that and I think that's exactly what God would take. That they, we would go out even anonymously and simply preach Christ. 
proclaim him. That's the kind of church that changes the world. The second thing I want you to see is the kind of church that changed the world is a teaching church, right? They, they, listen, it's, it's kind of sad to me, by the way, that, that very often there are churches that are known for like, that's a soul-winning church, right? That's a church that's all about evangelism. There's other churches that are known for being, you know, they're really good on teaching and doctrine. Why can't it be both? It should be both, right? There should be churches that are both evangelistic, they're reaching and teaching, they're, they're winning and discipling, because all of those young people, all of those young Christians who come in need to be discipled. They, they, they need to know some things. And this this is exactly what happened in, in verses 22 through 26. Look at that. You see, here's this young church, and what happens? Barnabas comes and begins to teach them. Then Paul joins him later. And so what's happening there? What, what, what kind of thing is happening within a, uh, a teaching church? Let, let me just give you a few things under here. Number one, I want you to see there's just sort of quality control going on, right? So Barnabas comes. They hear about the church in Jerusalem, which is the most established church, hears about what's happening in Antioch and go, man, let's send Barnabas. Let's have him go and, and he'll kind of make sure that the gospel's being taught properly. It's not being diluted or polluted, but, but there's actually good doctrine happening there. See, what, what they realized is this young church needed accountability outside of itself. They needed good teaching. And by the way, this is why God gives the church pastors and elders, right? He gives it so they can be taught. The Bible says, man, not everybody should seek to be a teacher because they're going to be subject to a stricter judgment, James tells us, right? So that, so that there is a weight upon the teaching and the preaching that happens in any church because we are required to be men and women of the Word that know how to help you grow in your knowledge of Scripture. So, so, so what happens? They've got these, these guys, you've got Paul and Barnabas who come, and, and it's not about controlling this church, it's about accountability. See, look, like, like again, we, we look at Hebrews and it tells us that, that we need those pastors, elders who will keep watch over our soul. We need, we, we need people who will keep us from, from running into the ditch, will keep us from being shipwrecked. Remember we said this last week, we need people beside us who will not just, who are, who are teaching us, will not just give us what we want, but will give us what we need. This is what's happening in Antioch when Barnabas comes. But the second thing, notice, we need maturity. So, so Barnabas and Paul are, are ahead, if you will. Barnabas and Paul are people who are further down the line in their faith. Maybe by this point, a decade, 15 years into their relationship with Jesus. These are experts who know what they're talking about to help others walk with Christ. Right? They're experienced Christians, They've walked with Jesus. They know what this looks and feels like. Do you have people in your life that are 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ahead of you? Like, are, there, are, there, are there people that are experienced? See, we've, we've lost sight of the fact that there are people who are greater experts than us, right? I mean, some of you know The Onion. It's a satirical newspaper, and there was a uh, an article a few years ago where they said this, Washington, D.C., citing years of frustration over their advice being misunderstood, misrepresented, or simply ignored, America's foremost experts in every field collectively tendered their resignation Monday, right? This is, this is what's happening. Anybody with an internet connection and Wikipedia and the ability to make a comment now looks at themselves as an expert. 
That is not a Christian posture. A Christian posture looks and says, man, I don't know everything. Man, I need to learn. I need to, I need to have mature believers and others around me, especially in my Christianity, that helps me to understand how to walk with Jesus. I need parents. I need elders. I need staff members. I need people who have shown that they've been faithful for decades walking with Jesus to walk with me because I can't make it alone. Listen, you need more than yourself, your Bible, your coffee, and an hour in the morning to make it in this life. You need what we talked about last week. You need deep community. You need mature people who will walk with you. This is what's happening in Antioch. Barnabas and Paul come. But the third thing, notice they need encouragement. In fact, we know from an earlier part of Acts, Barnabas, is, his name actually means son of encouragement. And here we see Barnabas sort of living out his name because he comes to this young church, maybe an untaught church. And what we're told is that he sees the grace of God and was glad. Like, I am sure there were things that Barnabas, if he were nitpicky, could walk in and say, man, you got this wrong. Your doctrine here is wrong. That's all. But it says he saw the grace of God, and he says, man, I want to I help you. I, I see the evidence of God's grace in your life. And in verse 23, it says he exhorted them. That word exhort does not mean rebuke. It's actually the same root word for encouragement. There he is. He's living up to his name. He's encouraging these young believers. Listen, let me say something to myself and to other mature believers out there who have walked with Jesus for decades. If you're with a young believer, somebody who's just come to Christ, are you nitpicking or are you encouraging? Would they say, man, when I'm around him, when I'm around her, I just feel so encouraged in my faith and I want to know more and I want to go deeper. Here's Barnabas just simply encouraging them. And then lastly, they, the, these young believers needed instruction, Right? They get Barnabas, then later comes perhaps the greatest teacher the church has ever known in the Apostle Paul. And he instructs them, right? And, and spends a year with them, we're told, right? Our, our, our faith, listen to me, we, we need the Word of God. Our faith is based on a book. This is what's happening with Barnabas and Paul. There is a content to our faith. There are doctrines to our faith. We need to learn those things, and we need faithful instructors. So let me just make a shameless plug for classes right now, right? Some of you go, man, I want to know the Word of God better. There's, there's classes for that, right? I, I want to I learn some of the doctrines of Scripture. There's a class for that, right? There's, there's places you can go to begin diving deeper into the Word of God, and you should. But, but I want to point something out here because I think, again, we sometimes go, oh, this church is really a soul-winning church and this church is kind of a discipleship and, you know, really about doctrine and, and Bible study. And we, we pit those things against each other. But notice in verse, in verse 24, we, we read that you know, Barnabas was a good man full of the Holy Spirit, and a great many people, here's Barnabas teaching them, were added to the Lord. You skip down to verse 26, it says they stayed, he and, he and Paul stayed for a year, and they met with the church and taught a great many people. What I want you to see is that these two aren't pitted against each other in, in Antioch. Here you have great teaching and great evangelism. This, when you see great many people added to the Lord, this is kind of Luke's way of saying, man, people are still coming to faith in Jesus. He does this over and over in the book of Acts. This is not a dead, dry, doctrinaire church. 
This is a vibrant and alive church, hungry, zealous for lost people. Let me say something, Foothill. I can tell you that in my life, the times when I have felt the most evangelistic zeal are the times when I'm learning the most about my Bible, learning the most about God and His nature. When I look and see, wow, this is so, they're so full of life and I want people to know this. They don't, they're not pitted against each other. That ought to be fuel for evangelism. The, the, the early church, it was an evangelistic church in Antioch. It was a teaching church. But, but thirdly, notice it was a generous church. In fact, it just, just, let me just remind you. Look, look at verse 27 again. It says, in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, do you see what's happening? They hear, it's not like, hey, there's a crisis now. There's a crisis coming. And we want to be ahead of the crisis. And the hope of the gospel caused them to go, man, let's give, each one according to our ability, right? This is something where the rich can give a lot and the poor, but they all can give. Everybody can get involved. And they heard about this need and they did something before the need had arrived. They didn't wait for the famine to hit and say, hey, we're on standby. When you need our money, we'll send it to you. They said, let's get ahead of it. Let's make sure if we can help it, this doesn't happen. I think I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, the Old Testament prophets and other, other places, that there is coming a famine. And I don't mean a famine of food. I don't mean pestilence. I'm talking about a famine the Bible talks about of the Word of God, a famine of gospel-centered churches, a famine of churches that will boldly, courageously, winsomely proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we can do is go, man, because the gospel has reshaped my understanding of my resources, is I understand that what God has given to me is not so I can amass more and more and more. It's so that I can leverage what He's given me for the sake of the advancement of His kingdom. And we can do this. And we should do this. This is why for the last several years now, we've been involved in church planting. We've said we want to see more of this happen. And so what have we done? Do you know over the last few years, you've given over a million dollars toward church planting both here and around the world? And today, we're back at it, right? We're back at this thing we do every year. And some of you say, man, we're in COVID-19. How would anybody plant a church? Listen, this is not the time to retreat. This is the time to advance. This is the time where we don't go, let's wait till the crisis arises. Let's get more people on the front line. So man, you know, we've, we've, we, we planted Story Church and Echo Church. We've helped churches down near UCLA here in the LA region. We, we've, we've gone to Ireland and, and now to Scotland. We've been in Paris, we're gonna we're gonna move into the Middle East and the Lebanon, right? We're gonna we're gonna start to, to make an imprint around the world as we give and as we, as as the Lord allows us to be generous. And so today we're starting what we've you know we called for the last few years our to the end of the earth campaign. And let me just explain how this works. Just like the church in Antioch, where everyone can give according to their ability, we've designed this so literally. Everybody can be involved. Your children can be involved. 
So you can, you can log on right now to foothill.church slash send or go onto your app and you're going to see uh, a section for to the end of the earth. Click on that and then what's going to take you to is, you might remember if you came, there were envelopes we'd put on the wall and I think those envelopes go up to like 700 or something like that uh, all the way down to one. And so if you took the 612 envelope, what that's saying is if you grab that one, you're saying between now and December 31st, I'll give $612. If I grab the $7 for my child, then between now and December 31st, by God's grace, we will give, we will give $7, right? And, and, and here's how I've done it in my family, right? This is something that I've looked and said, all of us can do this. So Michelle can do it. I can do it. It's not like, hey, let's do this collectively as a family, Gabby, Tucker, Berkeley, Gracie can do it individually. They can, they can make this happen and say, I'm going I'm to let the Lord lead me and guide me into what I ought to give. And so I want to just encourage you right now, right? Let's grab our phones or log on to, to our website and look and begin to pray and ask God, what would you have me to do? How would you have me get involved? How could we begin to actually be a generous church that supports the existing churches that need our support and then, and then helps for those churches that are trying to get launched out there? Because we need more. Listen, I've seen statistics that we've lost over 500 gospel preaching churches in the last 10 years. I mean, we need 500 churches yesterday. And this is just in Southern California, by the way. Um, what if we could be a part of the answer to that problem. I don't know that Antioch solved the Jerusalem church's problem. I, I, I don't know that we will solve, we won't solve, but we can be part of the solution. So I want to encourage you today that you would take time and together we would give and we would give generously. Our goal is to raise $250,000 for, for, for the sake of church planning, missions, and outreach. And so, man, I just want to encourage you, you'd think, pray, and then you'd, you'd be decisive and say, we're going to give. And I'm going to give this, my wife, however that works in your family, everyone can be involved. Listen, we've, by the way, we've, we've kind of said if it's 100 and below, we've reserved that for our children's ministry. Uh, but, but, you know, this is something college students, you can get involved, young adults, you can get involved, retired folks, you can get involved, everybody. But man, I want to encourage that everybody would do something and we would raise money and we would be a generous church that reaches out and changes our world, okay? Now, let me show you one last thing here. Because really, all of this is for naught if this last thing isn't for in place. And I want you to see that a church that changes the world is a grace-empowered church. Okay, go back to, to verse 21 just for a second and look at this with me. It says of this church in Antioch, the hand of the Lord was with them. In verse 23, Barnabas comes and sees and saw the grace of God. They were to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Uh, in verse 24, uh, or verse, verse 20, yeah, verse 24, it says, uh, Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I want you to see this, that everywhere you turn at this church, there's the hand of God, the grace of God, the Spirit of God is upon them. The ultimate reason they were effective is not just because they gave money, not because they just proclaimed Christ, right? Ultimately, it's because God's hand was with them. The grace of God was upon them. And so we recognize that we work hard, right? We go out and do the work of evangelism. But in the end, we know that if God isn't behind it, if the hand of God isn't with us, this goes nowhere. But we're confident because we are about God's business that God's hand will be upon a church that preaches and teaches, a church that's cross-cultural, a church that's reconciling races within its walls, 
A church that's countercultural and in a subversive way towards the, the, the culture around it. It's that, you know, people are out there anonymously where there's young and old together and the hand of God will be with us. The grace of God will be empowering us. Listen, um, to, to, to harvest what God wants us to harvest, right? We might think of the tractor that has to go out in the field and harvest that field, but the fuel in that tractor is the grace of God. It's the hand of God moving that forward. And so we need that. We desperately need to say, God, will you place your hand upon us? Spirit of God, will you come and fill us so that we can be one of these churches that changes the world, okay? Let's pray that for ourselves. We've, we've, uh, we've pushed the prayer time to the end of this because I just want us to pray. I want to give you a moment to pray. And, and, um, and, and here's, here, here's a few things I, I'd love you to pray for. Um, number one, that the hand of God would be with us, right? That, that we could actually look, and look back, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now, and men say one of the heritages of Foothill Church is that God was with us. The grace of God was empowering us. That we would be an evangelistic, a teaching, and a generous church. That that could be said of Foothill. And that God would bless our generosity so more churches could be planted and that planters could be supported Right, that, that that would be part of our heritage, that millions of dollars would flow through Foothill Church for the sake of planting more and more churches, supporting more and more missionaries, getting the gospel out uh, to the nations. This is the impulse of the gospel. And let me, let me just say, as you pray through that, let me give you one more thing to pray about, that you would just simply ask God, God, what part can I play in this? What part can I play? See, all of us can pray right now. Okay, most, if not all of us, can give from $1 to $700 or whatever, we can give. And a few of us, I pray that Foothill Church will become a church that sends people out and a few of us, many of us perhaps, would go. Go to the nations, go plant churches, be a church that is all about seeing the gospel expanded in our world, okay? So just take a few moments. I want you to just pray uh, on your own and uh, in about a minute, um, I'm going to just close us out in prayer. Okay, bow your heads and let's pray through this. So, Father, I do pray. I pray that you would be with us. I pray that as we're about your business and evangelizing and, and teaching and we're generous, God, we see this kind of cross-cultural ministry. We pray that reconciliation would be happening inside of our church walls, that, God, your hand, the grace of God would be upon us. 
I pray that we would be this evangelistic, teaching, generous church. And I pray, oh God, that you would bless our generosity as a church. That, Lord, we'd get ahead of the famine that's coming. Not waiting for that to happen, but God seeing we know it's coming and we want to be part of planting more gospel-centered, word-based churches in the world that are reaching people, discipling people uh, through the Word of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That more planters could be supported. God, we'd see churches popping up all over our area. God, we'd be part of the remedy of what's happening in, in, in Lebanon, in, in, in Europe, God, and, and around the world, Lord, as we, we send our dollars to the front lines. God, help us. And then finally, Lord, I pray for myself, and I pray for all of us praying together that, Lord, you'd give us a sense of what do you want us to do? Or there's some of us, you know, all of us can be praying right now. We can be praying for the advancement of, of the kingdom in our world. We many, most of us can give. And so I pray, God, just settle in our hearts. What should we give? How can we be generous? What would stretch us beyond ourselves to do what's just comfortable? God, to be used by you in a mighty way. And then finally, I pray there'd be those that say, would you send me? God, would there be people saying, that's me. I want to go. I want to be at the front lines. I want to I I be a business person in the 1040 window. I'm just going to proclaim Christ there doing what God has called me to do. Or I want to go and commit my life to missions or church planting and be part of that. Father, I, I, I pray that even now you would draw people to yourself. Even now, God, if there's people who are saying, man, I want to know how to become a Christian. I want to know how to come into this kingdom. That, Lord, there would be those who would, would repent of their sin and turn in faith to Jesus. God, use us to be an evangelistic church where people are coming to faith and then being discipled in that faith and learning how to walk with Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.